You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastablasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Firstly, let me just uh, say another really big thank you to uh, all of those of you who um, took time out to leave a rating and review in iTunes this week. I noticed quite a few. Some of them, of course, you have uh, some funny names like N8 Finch, Spectre, Sheck Lee, Dan 7586, JP Messiah, and Ross Paul and Swiss 1291, just to name a few. But we, you know, we mention you because it is really important for us as a podcast to receive these ratings and review. So we do appreciate them and rest assured we read all of them. And by the way, as I mentioned last week, you know, these reviews not only help investors discover the podcast, they actually also help you as a current listener, because the more the podcast grows, the easier it becomes for us to attract the best minds in finance to join our conversation. So if you have not yet left a rating and review, we would love if you would take out five minutes of your time to uh, maybe do it now by hitting pause and then hit play button when you're done to continue today's episode. And if you need a little bit of help, you can go to toptradersunplug.com forward slash review. And then you have all the instructions that you need. And I hope, as I always say, that it is not too much of an ask from our side. Moritz, great to have you back this week. How are you doing? How was your uh, time away from podcasting? Hey, Niels, I missed the podcasting. Uh, great <laughs> to be back, but I was on a two-week vacation. Well, vacation in, you know, air quotes, because, you know, right. with COVID and, you know, all that stuff going on, it's, it's, the vacations are, they tend to be a little bit different than normal, but I'm back refreshed and in good spirits. So, uh, looking forward to today's chat with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Likewise. So my summary this week is going to be a little bit different than the usual because I came across something that I found, uh, really interesting. And of course, the first question is this thing about doing well with money has very little to do how smart you are, but it's a lot more to do uh, on how you behave. And uh, as most people know, behavior is very hard to teach, even to really smart people. So, you know, a genius who loses control of their emotions can be financially a disaster. And the opposite, of course, can also be true. Ordinary folks with no financial education can be wealthy if they have a handful of behavioral skills that have nothing to do with formal measures of intelligence. And uh, this is how one of uh, my, and I think I'm sure I talk for you as well, favorite bloggers and authors Morgan Housel begins his new book, The Psychology of Money. And Housel touches, or his book touches, on many important aspects of our relationship with money. It highlights a very uh, interesting relationship, which of course we are familiar with, which is the relationship between luck and risk. And he does that through a story about Bill Gates, who was really one or had one in a million chance that he, as a high school age student, attended a high school that had the combination of cash and foresight to buy a computer. So clearly, he was luck was on his side. But then at the same time, what most people don't know, and I didn't know either, Bill Gates actually had a very close friend growing up called Kent Evans. And he, uh, in, in Gates's words, were perhaps the best student in his class and someone that Bill Gates believed that he would have gone to college with and ended up working with, I'm sure, as the third founder of Microsoft uh, in that sense. But Kent Evans, unfortunately, experienced the other side, namely the risk side, because he died in a mountaineering accident before he even graduated high school. And the odds of being killed on a mountain while in high school is roughly the same, about one to one million. So the other thing that the book does, and I'm not going to go through the whole book, but it does remind us about the importance of having a long investment horizon. He writes about how 81.5 billion of Warren Buffett's 84.5 billion net worth has come to him after he turned 65. So that's 
kind of quite hard to understand, I think, for for many, many people. And there's also a chapter about getting wealthy versus staying wealthy and how good investing is not necessarily about good decisions. It's about consistently not screwing up, put in his words, apologize. And also, I think one of my favorite chapters so far in the book is a chapter that is called Tales You Win and the fact that you can be wrong half the time and still make a fortune. And, you know, there are so many things in that chapter that relates back to trend following and to give you maybe a little taster of that, Housel explains that most public companies are actually not great. Very few do well and a handful of them become extraordinary uh, winners. And that's really what accounts for the majority of the stock market returns. And he he's found a study that JP Morgan did where they look at the return distribution of the Russell 3000 index. So a really big and broad collection of uh, public companies going back all the way to 1980. And about 40% of the Russell 3000 stock components lost at least 70% of their value and never recovered over this period. And effectively, what they find is that the index overall returns came from just 7% of the components. And those components then outperformed by at least two standard deviation, just like we're seeing right now with the FANG stocks, I think. So to me, it is just very interesting because... This is kind of what we see and why we believe trend following uh, is, is, is a good strategy and why you need a diversified portfolio. Because as we also see in our portfolios, we have lots of small losing trades and a few big winners and they pay for all of these plus generates the uh, performance. So anyway, I recommend people look into that book in their own time, but it was just uh, an interesting uh, way of looking at a lot of, uh, you know, a different way to look at a lot of the topics that we talk about on the podcast anyways. Yes, I'm actually looking forward to reading Morgan's book. I find everything, really everything that he writes, very nice to read. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he has a just a gifted writer, a very nice way of putting things into words. And I just enjoy it. It always comes from a different perspective. And I'm looking forward to reading his book. Yeah, yeah. We have to talk about how things are going in the portfolio. I don't know whether that's yeah. a good way to start your time back and on a podcast. It has been yes. an interesting couple of weeks. but No, let's do this. I mean, <laughs> it, it is what it is. I've actually had a little bit of a positive week this past week for a change, right? I mean, overall, my portfolio is down about 6%. And before you press the record button, Niels, um, I mentioned that really all of the sectors except one this year produced positive returns in my trend-following trading system. Commodities are up, especially the energies, right, because we were riding down crude oil market uh, earlier this year in spring. Currencies are up, the bond markets are up, and the only detractor from the performance are the equities because of the V-shaped recovery that we got so wrong. And I think, you know, in my case, they're close to like, you know, minus 20% or something like that in terms of return contribution for the year. So they are a real drag, they're a real weight that I have to carry along this year. Um, luckily, the year has still a little bit of uh, time in the tank. We're, we're not yet on the 31st of December. Things can change quickly. Minus 6% can be plus 6% uh, in a month from now. Not a problem with the volatility that I trade. So no reason to get depressed, but um, it's just, it, it continues to be a difficult trading environment for the way that I take positions, to say the least. And I think that's that, that's a fair statement. And <laughs> we have to get Jerry back and talk about the single stocks. You and I were not trading these single stocks. I mean, I, if you have the fangs on, which you just mentioned, I mean, this can be fireworks, right? I mean, Tesla is something that I observe as an as an outside observer these days. I, uh, I remember we spoke about me having that discretionary call option trade on probably at the end of last year or something like that. And then that was a successful trade and I haven't touched it since. And uh, I really must say, this is probably what Mark Cahodas, if people know Mark Cahodas, mm -hmm. a uh, really famous short seller, he kind of like says, you have to wait for the Jaguar to fall out of the tree and then go after him. Kind of like, you know, with Wirecard. There's no point shorting the thing at 200. Yes, if you can get this done and short it at 200 and, you know, you know, buy it back at one, well, great, all the kudos to you. But you could have said the same thing with Wirecard at 50 or Wirecard at 100. And, you know, this, this thing just then goes where it needs to go. And it seems to me that the same is true for Tesla, right? It becomes a, an organism of its own. 
detached from valuations and you know you and i were not value guys or anything like that i don't i don't know whether it's fairly valued or not but it seems that there's just a lot of flow be you know out of the money call options being purchased on tesla and robin hood traders and retail flow going into the thing and who knows where it's going to go it may go to the moon right if you're short that thing you may not survive it or your portfolio may not survive it so what mark Cahodas is saying and i i I tend to agree with that. Not that I would do that discussionary trade is you have to wait for the thing to really fall apart and then go after it. Right now, the was actually quite interesting. You know, Germany, as you know, is a, is a car country, right? We love the BMWs and the Mercedes and the Audis and all of that. And I think we're building great cars, but Tesla is now worth more than all of them. Right. And there is kind of like the, you know, sometimes I hear or read articles about that, it's kind of like an imminent fear that, you know, what happens if Elon Musk and Tesla kind of like knows, well, we're too highly valued and really we're not producing as great a car as say a BMW and, and our finances aren't as great. Anyway, whatever the case may be, but we have, our stock is worth so much. How about we just purchase Daimler? How about we just use our expensive Tesla stock and we offer the Daimler guys twice the current share price, right? And just own a fantastic brand name. And then nobody, if we do this, nobody will then look through kind of like the, the fog anymore and look at Tesla. Now they will look at, oh, yeah, you're building all these Mercedes cars and you also have an EV operation and all the great technology and all of that, right? And, and the problem kind of like goes away. So it's, uh, it's interesting. Wow. It's certainly a stock that has attracted a lot of attention and a lot of divided opinion. I almost feel you have to be kind of careful what you publicly say about Tesla when you hear some of the stories out there. Yes. But what I will say, I think as a starting point at least, if people want a balanced view, but also a transparent view on that, they should go and listen to the latest episode of Grant Williams' podcast because he discusses Tesla, something he's talked about in his work for a long time, but he does it with an interesting guy that has done a lot of work and who has recently interviewed some, or one really interesting person regarding Tesla. And I, Carl Hansen. Carl Hansen. Now, Sorry to interrupt, it's Carl Hansen. It is. It's, it's TC, the TC chartcast. Yeah, so and I'm kind, of, I'm kind of cautious because I don't want to get into that and I've listened to it but I really don't want to get into that and I don't want uh, my, the podcast to be involved in any of that because it seems like it's um, not quite um, the normal play. But let, let's leave it at that. Let's people go and listen to it, yes. see if they're interested. It, it, from a trading point of view, and you're absolutely right, it would be great to hear from uh, Jerry, um, who may or may not uh, have, I think he does have Tesla as in his universe. I think so. So Jerry, if you're listening while you're doing your treadmill, then come and talk to us about Tesla next time you're on in a few weeks. Because in some ways, as you said, I mean, some of these um, FANG stocks, I mean, have been fantastic from a trend following point of view. Mm. But at the same time, and let me just, let me finish the market wrap, but I, then I want to go back to your point about the performance and distribution of performance. So anyway, on our side, we we also had a slight up week uh, this week, still down for the month and for the year a little bit, mainly really from losses stemming from the dollar suddenly gaining some strength, uh, the U.S. equities uh, continuing their slide, which are you know just positions that where we have the opposite on, so to speak, and also lean hogs and corn have been a bit tricky the last week. And then on the positive side, we saw good gains in fixed income and energy as well as volatility, and on our pure volatility side, we had a pretty good week, actually, as we saw near-term volatility kind of come down and it's all normalized a little bit. So, But I want to get back to your point, because I think from a pure trend-following perspective, I think there are some investors out there who look at this space right now and think, hmm, most managers are kind of plus-minus 4% for the year, and... Um, we kind of expected this to be a year with so many fireworks to where these kind of strategies could really shine. And then when you start to drill down, as you rightly mentioned, you find out that it's really one sector that is causing most of the damage this year. But again, it's not unusual. It happens. 
But what it does raise a little bit the question of, I think, uh, after all, and that is we've seen this now kind of twice happen in the last three years where you have these in the stock markets, very sharp moves both ways, initially down and then up. And that is, of course, the worst thing that we as trend followers, you know, longer term trend followers, um, you know, uh, in terms of environment, that's not good for us. So you could shrug it, off, shrug it off and just say, well, you know, it happens from time to time. But, you know, now it's happened twice in the last three years. So I do think as, a, as, as, a, as an industry, and it's certainly something that we uh, look at. Um, I talked to my colleague uh, last week about it, and that is, do we need to look at how to better deal with some of these extreme periods? I mean, are there things we can do? Who knows? I don't know the answer to that. Neither, you know, maybe we need to consider that these things could happen more often, and so we need to have maybe some other ways of dealing with that, but still from a trend-following perspective. So, I don't know if something you've noticed or thought about, or whether you just keep doing what you do and not, you know. Yeah, I haven't thought about it too much. Good point. I mean, I I think I'm in the uh, keep doing what I'm doing camp uh, for the time being, at least. Um, but the equities, like I've said, I mean, this year they've been very, very difficult for me to trade. Yeah. Equity indices, I should say, to be you know specific, because you know we were we were long when the crash happened, and then we took we took a beating because we stayed long until we you know we changed, and then the thing did a recovery. So we lost on both sides. Do I want to change my trading system because of that? No, I don't. You sometimes hear say, people say, well, you should really do equities and trend follow equity indices only from a long, flat perspective and never be short, right? Only long. And I don't know. It kind of like goes against the way I look at trend following and the way I want to design my system. I want to be able to trade all markets long and short, right? And not favor one position over the other. And who knows, maybe, you know, having the possibility of trading equities on the short side is going to be a great feature in the next 10 years. Uh, who knows? So no, I won't change. I'll stay where I am for now. Obviously doing research into these areas is is interesting and I encourage everybody to do that. And if they're willing to share the results or let me have a look, then I'd appreciate that. But I'm currently not, wor- not working on that. Yeah. I mean, I think from our conversations with Jerry, of course, uh, one of the things that he's found is that actually for him, single stocks works better and potentially may not be mm. as damaging as, as this year has been because obviously even though the S&P goes down, it doesn't mean that every single stock in the S&P goes down at the same speed or at the same magnitude. So, um, I mean, that's one way of, of dealing with it. But I also understand your point that you don't want to overreact. Now, of course, equities weren't the only sector that had one of these V-shaped market uh, moves this year. I mean, energies actually also had, but they, you know, there's just more meat for us to kind of capture, I would say, than than in the equities because we were positioned yeah, they, differently in the initial phase, so we didn't get clobbered initially. Right. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just quote-unquote right. bad luck. Exactly true. Like, uh, you know, we had with the with crude oil at least, right? Remember this kind of eight, nine, maybe ten buck drop over the weekend, yeah. you know, from a Friday to Monday. And we were already uh, rightly positioned yeah. for that move, right? So there you go. And then, as you know, I don't vault target, so I had a good size position yeah. on, and I kept it as that. And uh, you know, and then there was another another twenty or twenty five dollars from there to go. So I enjoyed that, which is why the energies continues to be the best performing part of my portfolio this year, even though it's detracted from the performance quite a bit in the past couple of weeks. It's now getting better. I'm actually still short. I'm still short WTI. Yeah. I never changed it nope. for long. Um, right? So the, the past couple of months obviously have been a bit more difficult. But this past week, crude was going down, both Brent and WTI. And I was again making money from yeah. that. I think they were probably among the largest contributors of positive performance to my portfolio this week. Yeah, same on our side. Absolutely. And and that's... And, you know, natural gas is another one. Natural gas has been like down, down, down. And then all of a sudden, boom, up, yeah. right? Uh, lean hawks, another one. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, I mean, lean hawks is always volatile, but the past couple of days, it's kind of like it moved, I don't know, nine bucks in three or four days. So it's, uh, 
something's going on there. And remember Lumber, you know, Lumber just... Oh, yeah, and, what and happened to Lumber, had, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, Lumber had an interesting break to its positive performance. I mean, lum the Lumber market was performing really, really well for weeks on end, just higher, 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 right? And then all of a sudden, for a couple of days in a row, it was limit down, limit down, yeah. limit down. And then I think it was Wednesday or Thursday where it was like a weird day where the thing was kind of like going limit up in a reversal only to end the day limit down. Oh, my God. So okay. both, both limit <laughs> events in one day. It is like we've said before, it's one of the smaller markets in the commodity space. Not everybody trades it. It's kind of like canola and, you know, milk and rubber and OJ and, and lumber. I mean, yes, you, you cannot get that much size done if you're a large CTA in these markets. But for like my my prop PA type of portfolio, uh, it's perfectly fine to trade it. And I get a lot of diversification from the lumber market. So I'm keen to get keen to have it in the portfolio. But yeah, of course, I mean, uh, that's another reversal. I mean, you don't have to think too hard to know my position in that market. I've been long. I enjoyed the ride up and and I still am. So, <laughs> But it does touch, I, I mean, and I think we can even include, and, you know, again, I think, I don't even know if you trade this, but but it's a market that we've talked about and that's rough rice. I think that has a kind of had kind mm -hmm. of a similar market move this year. But it does, I think it does raise one important point, which I think we should always stress. And, and that is, you know, there's always execution risk because liquidity, as you say, you just can't get in and out if it goes limit up or down. So that is a risk you have to take into account. And that's why it can only be a small part of a, of a really well diversified portfolio. And I don't think it should be one of the first markets you start trading, that's for sure. But, you know, at the edge, it, it, it probably adds something, but you have to be able to withstand not getting out, you know, at the price you thought you could get out because you could have several of these days. Yes, I mean, having limit events on consecutive days is something that's not nice if you have a position and oh, you're, you're wrong-footed. Um, don't forget, I mean, in general, those limit up, limit down events tend to occur more often, in my experience at least, in the commodity markets. Yeah. But don't forget, they also happen in WTI, they happen in heating oil. And this year, we've seen quite a few of those happening in the E-Muni S&P 500. Yeah. So it, it can happen to all of those markets. I don't disagree. I think the likelihood of them happening in the uh, smaller markets, such as lumber, is greater because, you know, it only requires that much of, you know, lots being traded for the thing to be a limited event on either side of the market. So, yes, like you say, I agree. It is something to be mindful of when you put those markets into your system and when you design the risk allocation framework around it. That being said, you should also very fairly and openly look at the diversification benefit that you can yeah. get from those markets, right? And I include rough rice in that, and I include milk in that. If you're trading a contract or two, if you're one of these, you know, do-it-yourself trend-following uh, traders, then I think that is fine. That's a fine market to trade. If you need to get 100 lots done, by all means, I don't recommend doing it. <laughs> don't be too large in any of these markets. That's important. Yeah, very important. We talked about, or you touched on something regarding interest rates earlier today, and uh, I think we both came across an article from the fixed income sector, another topic that has been talked about. And, and I think from my recollection, at least, um, it hasn't been mentioned so often recently, but a few years back, people, a lot of shorter-term managers, uh, not a lot of, that's not fair to say, some short-term managers were out saying that trend followers had made all their money from fixed income in the last 20 plus years. And now when interest rates start to go up, that's going to be over. And um, this is why they need to go with a short-term manager. That was kind of the pitch. But of course, returns don't come only from the price move. It comes from a few components of you know how markets are structured. So do you want to talk a little bit about the article that I'm thinking of. I think we both saw it um, that breaks down, a, a, you know, some of the components of these things. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to um, to speak about it. And, and just to frame it, I think it's probably four, maybe five years ago that these early articles came out, which I think you just mentioned or you're referring to. And, and I believe it was driven by one observation that was Yields were going lower and lower and lower and lower. And investors and maybe managers alike 
became increasingly worried that if we hit the zero bound, or if we go, say, below 1%, you know, probably, you know, five years, we had the 10-year north of 2%, right? So if we go too low, then we're two things are happening. One, we're losing our money-making capability as trend-following traders from these markets because the bond markets would no longer trend up, point one. Point two, we would be losing our kind of like um, the crash protection element of them, uh, assuming that the correlation between bonds and equities is negative, meaning that you know if we have a crash in the equity markets, then if we're long bond as trend-following traders, we can enjoy the P&L from these bond markets during the time of a crash and that this element, this protective protective element would go away because bonds would no longer react. Now, ever since these papers or these articles were written, it quieted down. And the only reason I, you know, I can see for it quieting down is, ha ha ha, we did make money trading bond markets on the long side. At least I continue to trade the bonds and I think you did too, Niels. And in 2019, I think they were the best performing market. So here we go. They they continued to work from us. And now let's separate two things. If if you're a long-only bond investor, either in a 60-40 portfolio or you're holding physical cash bonds or cash bonds as part of your asset allocation strategy, I do agree that the risk-reward characteristics of that instruments have changed. Unless, unless that is, you believe that interest rates can go to minus five or minus 10 or something like that, right? In which case, the price of the bond would continue to rise. Now, whether that's likely, I don't know. I think it's fair to say that it's becoming increasingly unlikely that we're going to see something like minus five. I I don't see that happening in the US. It's kind of like, you know, maybe zero is the bound or slightly negative or something like that. But it's difficult for me to imagine that we're going to the minus five or something like that level. Now, this means that for that cash bond, your return from a price appreciation of that bond no longer is there. But in return, I mean, you don't get a you don't get a yield because you know it's already zero. So you're holding that thing. You don't get paid for it, but you have a bunch of risks associated with that holding. One is inflation. If slash when inflation shows up, bonds, especially the bonds of longer duration, suffer a lot. They will go down in value. And if interest rates and yields were to rise ever again, I'm not saying that this is happening tomorrow. Maybe it's not happening in the next couple of years, but at some point it, it may happen. If you're holding a longer date bond, then you will suffer because the price of that bond will go down. So there's many things, I believe, that can work against you when you hold a cash instrument, a cash bond instrument, and not that many that can work in your favor, unless, like I say, you believe yields are going to go much, much lower compared to where they are today. Now, this is different to what we're doing in trend-following space because we're not trading cash bonds. I mean, we do have cash bills, I guess. You will probably have that as well, um, Niels, such as T-bills, right, if you're in US dollars, right? to put your access non-margin cash to work and not have that cash sit on the account of the clearing broker where it attracts a negative funding spread. So yes, we do have these cash investments, but they're like, you know, one to three month expirations and there's not much happening because they don't have a lot of duration. But we're also trading the 10-year, you know, we're trading, for instance, I'm trading the Boxel, which is a 30-year, right? So this is long, long duration bonds, but I'm trading the futures contract on that. And this is different than cash because there's a couple of things happening with the pricing of that futures contract that are different to the cash instrument. And and this paper that you mentioned, I think, did a very good job of dissecting the different sources of return and yield that are associated with trading bond futures contract. And for the most part, in the earlier papers, we've had, oh, yes, there's a carry element and we know that, right? So if bond futures trade in backwardation because the yield curve is upward sloping, meaning you have a shorter dated funding rate that's implied in the basis of the futures contract, but you have a longer dated yield creating the backward-aided contract price, then you have a you have a carry that you can earn if you're holding a long position. And this carry is quite substantial. You know, I think it's probably made two-thirds in recent years of the return associated with the long position. And only one third has come for price appreciation 
meaning from a further decline in the yield. Now, what this paper also does is it adds a third element to it, which the other articles have previously not touched on, and I think they're doing a good job with it, and that is the roll yield, right? Which is the yield that you will gain in addition to the carry only because the maturity changes. You're becoming shorter dated, right? And if the yield curve stays exactly unchanged compared to the point when you enter the position, and it's exactly the same at the point when you exit the position, then you will have entered a longer-term maturity bond. Now that you exit it, it's a slightly different tenor. It's a slightly different maturity. It's shorter dated now. And if the yield curve is normal, meaning upward sloping, then you get that roll yield. And this is another very important element and factor of our returns. And the conclusion of that paper is that, yes, I mean, the risk-reward characteristics also for the futures may not be as good compared to where they were 10 years ago or something like that. But if the yield curve is upward sloping, if we're in a normal interest rate environment, which, by the way, even if yields rise, the yield curve can continue to be upward sloping. It's not a given, right, that there's an inversion at the 10-year point or something like that. So because of the carry and the roll-down element, it is still an instrument that deserves a place in a diversified trend-following portfolio. And I concur with that. I think this is true. I'd like yields to be higher for many reasons, right? For, for reason one being the obvious one, I will earn more interest on the cash that I'm not using because I'm not, you know, and I will also earn more interest on the margin. And I think it would positively affect the pricing of other assets as well, equities included. There's probably then more going on in the, in, in the currency markets. Anyway, I'd like yields to be higher, but they are not. But to say that because they're low or because they're zero, I'm now going to toss out the bonds of my portfolio. Uh, that is not something that I am willing to do. And if, when, if, who knows, at some point yields will rise, right? And I mean, the carry has contracted quite a lot. The, the carry that we had, I mean, the steepness of the yield curve was much, much larger years ago compared to where it is today. But because the carry is relatively low, it also means that if we were to take on short positions, you know, which sometimes we do, then it doesn't cost us as much because then we're on the other side of that carry. Then we're paying that carry, right? So it, 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 it may be a beneficial or more beneficial environment to trade the bond futures on the short side compared to, um, to recent years. Anyway, I don't want that to be a monologue. Cutting a long story short, I think that was a good article and they've done a good job explaining how it works. And I concur with the conclusion that fixed income futures have a place in a diversified trend-following portfolio, regardless of the current yield environment. Yep, I um, couldn't have said it better, or maybe not even shorter. There is a question, maybe even two, that we can dive into as well. So we like, obviously, receiving your questions. So by all means, send them to info at toptradersonblog.com and we'll do our very best to give you some um, things to think about, at least. So this question is from Mike. Mike had a question he had waited a very long time for, for Rob that we got a couple of weeks ago done with a very lengthy explanation by Rob, which was very uh, professorial, if I can put it that way. Now here's a different question, which I'm sure you will uh, like, Moritz, and that is, a colleague and I are looking for a platform to paper trade a system. The platform would ideally have the following characteristics. Aggregate live pricing data across liquid securities in a global market, like stocks, futures, options. Execute trades across all set securities in a programmatic manner, including ability to take short positions and apply leverage. Access to data from various sources. I would prefer if data is passed in a way that allows time and context to be interpreted well. And it has a custom allocation engine, transaction cost optimization uh, slash minimization. So, Mike, of course, you're not asking for a few things here. You're asking for kind of a Rolls Royce, I think, of backtesting. But let's see what Moritz has to say. I have a feeling where we're going with this. But let's hear more. It's about kind of backtesting platforms, what your 
experiences with this? Yes, uh, Mike, you're asking for a lot of things, and I'm not sure if you're asking for a backtesting platform. I'm very happy to speak about backtesting platforms, but I think, Niels, what we've said earlier is a paper trade. Or maybe it's not uh, yeah, to actually test the system. Uh, okay, it's kind of a, okay. a, as you say, it's kind of a mix of things. You're right, you're right. Mike. Right, it's two different things. I mean, there are services slash platforms that offer a paper trading environment. Actually, Interactive Brokers is doing that. You can open a simulated or paper traded interactive brokers account and obviously then the benefit is you're in that simulated environment but you're you get all the reporting and you can say you get a statement you know these type of things uh, but not with real money so you can exercise if you will do a dry run but then at some point you would start trading live and and this is when things change because, you know, you will have impact. Every transaction that is done in the market will have impact. It hits the order book in some way, shape or form. And, um, you know, the, the result may therefore then be different than in a paper trading environment. But going to the backtesting platforms, what you want is not Excel because you've just mentioned that, you know, you want allocation mechanisms and all these type of things. There's two things. I mean, if you don't want to do it DIY, Right. You, I mean, you can set all of that up in, in, in Python, but it requires you to be skilled in Python and it requires you to put in the, the labor and uh, spend the time to get it done. The alternative is you can spend some money. It's not incredibly expensive for some of these systems and purchase one that has these features built in. Maybe not all of them that you're looking for, but at least some of them, if not most of them. And I think that for futures-based backtesting purposes. There is a system which is called Trading Blocks, which actually I'm, I'm only in touch with since about a year. And I'm using it to kind of like run a couple of tests, play around with it. It's, it's easy enough for me to use. And I can really recommend that. Trading Blocks, B-L-O-X. Very good for backtesting futures-based trading systems, but you can also do cash equities. I've never done that, so I can't speak to that. But I know that for the futures, it works really well. And it connects to one of my favorite market data providers, which is CSI, uh, very seamlessly. It has great stats. It has great charts. It has fantastic statistics. It produces orders, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for the price that you're paying, you're getting back a lot in return. And it's worth to have a look. And another one, well, two other ones that I've worked with in the past. One is called MultiCharts. MultiCharts is also a platform, but it's... It's used by a lot of people for intraday trading. So it's kind of like a different environment where, you know, you connect to market data source and then creates a chart and you're essentially trading off that chart and you can do it on tick data or minute bars and things like that. And obviously, you can do it on daily bars as well, which is, you know, where, where I'm at home. I don't do any of that intraday stuff, but it, it is there. I think it has a more powerful suite even in terms of like the, the features that it offers the features that you mentioned, Mike, like all oh, the reporting and allocation and things like that, I, I could imagine that MultiCharts has, has a bit more power under the hood in that regard. And finally, I want to mention, oh, well, actually, I, I, there's NinjaTrader, of course, there's TradeStation and, 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 and TradeSignal. I forgot TradeStation. I, TradeStation was the first system I ever, I ever worked with. And I, I can recommend it by all means. I think TradeStation is great. And trade signal and ninja trader are kind of like, you know, alternatives to that, but I don't think they're as powerful, at least the last time I looked. So here, here you are. I gave you, I think, what was it? Five names, trading blocks, multi-charts, ninja trader, trade station, trade signal. Have a look at them. See what they can do for you and uh, whether they can do what it is that you, uh, you need them to do. I mean, these were great recommendations. I don't know all of them. I know some of them. I've heard of others. So I think uh, Mike definitely has a really good list of things to uh, look into. One thing that I've always kind of thought about, and that is with those platforms where you have to kind of put your secret source, your code, your rules up into their system, it's always been kind of, I'm not sure I really want to do that. I don't really want other people to access my, <laughs> my code. So I have to say in my personal experience with all of this, I've had to uh, do it the other way, and that is to hire someone who I trust and who can actually program these things uh, in completely yes. separate uh, systems. Yeah, 
Yes, it's, I, I, I agree with that. There are platforms out there where your code is uploaded in a cloud or into their cloud, right? And it becomes visible or you don't know what is, right. you know, unless you read the terms and conditions and all the legal fine print around it, you don't really know what's going to happen with that stuff. I mean, there's actually a couple of business models, Quantopia and et cetera, yeah. that are built around that, right? Where you have trading competitions and all of that. And I would not do that. The five names that I've mentioned, they don't work that way. Mm -hmm. It's the software that you install on your computer. The only thing that it takes is market data, but all the programs and system files and everything that you create as your intellectual property is stored on your machine mm. and not in the provider's cloud. Yeah, It's so funny because we have another question this week. These are completely random people. They're probably... You know, Mike obviously is sitting somewhere in the world and then the our other listener who came in, which is Ka Mitch, I hope I didn't pronounce that too badly, who looks like he might be sitting in a completely different part of the world. And they actually have more or less the same question. I find that fascinating. So not to um, glance over your question, Ka Mitch, and I'm sure you've listened to Moritz's first question. Your question was specifically if we can recommend any other well-known off-the-shelf trend-following strategies for retail investors. So it's it's not exactly the same, right? It's here you're actually asking for kind of the answer to um, a strategy, and you start out by asking a question beforehand, and that is you're studying the composite dual momentum strategy by Gary Antonici and Ned Davis. About you ask whether we know the advantages and disadvantages of each of these strategies or whether you should imp implement both. And so I'm going to turn it again to Moritz because I give, did give him a heads up on, on this question and he may know a little bit more about this. I don't know any of these particular strategies, so I, I wouldn't want to give you my thoughts as such. But then uh, at least your follow-up question was somewhat related to what we talked about before. But let's uh, let's talk about this particular question. Yes, Gary Antonacci's dual momentum strategy, I think, is what was brought up. And and I must say, you know, I, I don't know how this system or this strategy performed this year. I'm not following the system. And I think it'll become clear in a second why. But I know how it works. And um, to summarize it real quick, it is a, in the original version of that uh, dual momentum strategy, which I remember, there is a domestic US equity market, say the S&P 500. There's an international equity market. You could say that's the MSCI world. And then there's the a US Treasury holding. And what you do is in a step one, you would observe which of the two equity markets shows the best 12-month performance, right? So it has a 12-month, i.e. one-year look-back window. And if the S&P 500, the domestic market, is performing better than the MSCI world, which is the international market, then you would go for the S&P 500 and vice versa. That's step one. Now there's a step two. The step two is you compare the winner of the selection that you've just made, the best of these two equity markets, you compare now to the 12-month performance of the bond market. And if the equity market has performed better than the bond market, then for the next period, which is one month, you will be long the equity market. And if the opposite is true, then you will be long the bond market, you will belong to US treasuries. And I've just mentioned one month. So there's always a month end observation. So only once a month, do you look at this system, and you would then implement on the next business day, whatever the new position ought to be. And then there's a nice performance chart, right? And it's, it's, it's performed real well. US equities have performed real well in the past couple of years, at least ever since the uh, GFC. We know that bond markets have performed really, really well for not only since the GFC, but for the past 30 or 35 years. So seeing a upward sloping, nicely looking performance chart attached to that system isn't all too much a surprise for me. In the same way that I'm not surprised to see nice performance charts for 60-40 portfolio or for risk parity portfolio up until now, right? It's kind of like, yeah, they've worked. But this is also then when I stop being interested in that type of a system for a couple of reasons. One, I don't like systems that have a once a month, end of month kind of like observation point. 
I mean, I, I get it. Yes, you say, okay, it's uh, it's more stable. I'm not overtrading. There's less activity, right? There's not too much stuff that needs to go on. But don't forget, you're also very dependent on that single point, right? If 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 on that day there's something crazy, or as it's just a very volatile market, it may come up with a different signal than the day before or the day after. So you're very dependent just an observation point. And I want to mention Corey Hofstein, who in the past couple of months has uh, written about this timing lap, which is something that we as trend-following traders have known since many, many years. But I mean, this I think is important, right? So one way of improving that is to say, well, why not do it every day? If a, if a month has 20 business days, you could do 1 20th of that system every day, right? If you have a large enough portfolio. But anyway, that's besides the point that the main reason that I'm not interested in that system. And I don't, if Gary Antonacci is listening, I'm, I'm not here to kind of like, you know, say that the system is bad or critique him in any shape or form. You know, it is what it is. It's just, for me, I want systems to trade more markets. I'm completely missing the commodities and the currencies from that system. I completely miss international and geographical diversification. It's completely focused on the U.S. with the S&P 500 and this, or international stocks and, and U.S. treasuries. It doesn't trade any other treasury market. And it only trades on the long side. And this is not what I would like to have in, or put, put it differently. I like a well-diversified system across many different assets, uncorrelated assets that can trade long and short much more off the get-go than a system that is trading three markets and can be long only. Yeah, and I mean, I think the origin of the question also comes from something that we have spoken about on the podcast over the last year or so, and that is what are people to do if they have been brought up in the world of the 60-40 portfolio? I mean, do you just keep sitting with that, even though the 40 part is not going to work very well for you going forward, given where rates are and of course Bridgewater and Ray Dalio as the largest hedge fund in the world coming out in July saying well we're probably going to stop using bonds in our 40 because we don't believe that it's going to do exactly what you said no 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 return and it's, it's the returnless risk you're ending up with so I do understand this idea of how do I know to switch between bonds and stocks and and, and I know some people who, who who does that and they have models for for that but I'm with Moritz completely that obviously we much prefer something that is much, that is fully diversified. But I understand where you're coming from. Is there a way to, to kind of trend follow in some ways uh, and decide whether to be in one asset class or, or the other? But I will say, though, that this off-the-shelf trend following strategies for retail investors, I would say far away from those because I've n never heard about any off-the-shelf trend-following strategy that will make people money, uh, frankly. So uh, be careful with that. Do your own research. You know, the thing is, trend-following doesn't have to be complicated, right? I mean, I think a lot of things can be done in a relatively simple way. So I'm not suggesting that we all go out and become competitors of the top managers in the world. I don't think that's necessary to do well and to have some kind of dynamic portfolio allocation that will over time just protect you a little bit more and allow you to participate in some bigger moves. And and I think if you can do that, going back to my very early comment about someone like a Warren Buffett, I mean, what really has made him super wealthy is the fact that he's been doing it for so long. So if you can generate a decent return, but you can stick with it for 30, 40, 50, 60, and in his case, probably 70 uh, years, that's the compound effect you really want in your portfolio. And I don't think you need super complicated, fancy rules to achieve a decent return to achieve that, frankly. Anyways, cool with all these questions. We appreciate that. Anything else as time is flying? Uh, we're almost at the hour mark. We won't keep you more than necessary. Um, anything else, uh, Moritz, that you wanted to bring up before we... Do a little bit of a, a look at what's happening in the wider world of CTAs? No, nothing else. Not that I can think of, at least right now. Looking forward to the next session with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. 
So Friday was actually a good day, I think, for most trend-following strategies, as far as I can tell. But it is still a month where, you know, most strategies uh, are struggling. And what's interesting to me is a little bit that actually the short-term traders index is, is down. So anyways, the numbers are that the beta 50 index is down about 40 basis points for the month, but also for the year. And this is as of Thursday. The Sockgen CT index about down about three quarters of a percent for the month, but down 2% or so for the year. The trend index down 1.35% in September and slightly down about 60 basis points for the year. And then the short-term traders index, which has def definitely been the best performing this year, is down about a percent in September uh, and down up, sorry, up still 2% for the year. And then contrasting that, you have the MSCI World Index, which is now down 3.6% almost in September, but still up 40 basis points for the year. And then on the flip side, going back to the 64 portfolio, you actually have seen some positive performance from the World Government Bond Index. It's up about 50 basis points so far. Those were the numbers. Uh, as always, let me just say that we uh, did publish a new episode or the last episode in the current series in the Global Macro Series with Professor Steve Keen, and that came out this week. Super interesting conversation. We got a lot of feedback and, and reaction to that, and Steve is an interesting person to listen to. So go and check that out if you uh, don't mind. Also, questions, as mentioned before, info at toptradersunplugged.com. That's where you find us, and uh, we will do our very best to answer the questions. And, of course, you can always follow us on Twitter. We got some guests lining up for you, uh, of course, as, as always, trying to line up something good for the next few weeks. So uh, stay tuned. But for now, Moritz and I are tuning out. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll be back with you next week. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com, and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.